You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. Today's topic is the 1993 film Shadowlands. So this film, it takes place in the early 50s in England, Oxford University. Mm-hmm. And we, and the main character is C.S. Lewis. And this is later in C.S. Lewis's life, but he's now... I believe he's finished the entire is it the entire narnia series or just the line he's Witcher? finished it entirely yeah so he's and you can see he's lived a, he has got a pretty comfortable set in life for himself he teaches at the university he lives on campus with his brother he seems pretty comfortable he does classes he has uh, dinners with all the other faculty members but after, because of he's been in, even before Narnia, he was already a pretty big figure, right? In, yes. In, yes. Brit- in Britain. Yeah. And so he gets a lot of letters from a lot of people, and when he's looking through some fan mail and stuff, he gets he's beginning a few letters from an American woman named Joy Davidman, and she is looking to meet him, and she says she's going to be heading over to Oxford, and they arrange a meeting, and they. She says she's going to be traveling to England with her son, but she's married. She's married to an author, William Lindsay Gresham. If that name sounds familiar, his most famous work was Nightmare Alley. That was turned into two films. One was from 1947, and one just came out a couple years ago. Both are really good. But she's not, he's not with her. All right. But through, they have a couple of meetings together, and you can tell that they are having, they're having forming a bond, even the, her son is with her Douglas. Yes. He's a big fan of the uh, Narnia series and I think the first thing he does when he goes to his house he wants to go upstairs to the attic and look at his wardrobe <laughs> yes. to see if he'll find Narnia behind it. Yeah. But you can see that she's sort of challenging him a little bit on his life. She's saying, you know, you are pretty protected here, you know, the people yeah. you interact with are students, so you are in a position higher than them, right? You, yeah. you, you know more, you're more intelligent than them. Yeah. And we see a lot with his classes that there is this one student, what's the student's name? Peter Whistler. Peter Whistler. And he's sort of, he nods off a lot in class. Yeah. And he also, one day he's doing a book signing of his Narnia series and he sees Peter at a bookstore and he's stealing the books. Yeah, a book. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yep. And... But eventually they keep meeting because she, she's staying in England. She doesn't go back to America. Right. And their bond is growing stronger. And it's revealed that her husband is become she's becoming estranged from her husband. He's fallen in love with another woman. But he's also been an alcoholic and abusive towards her. So she, yeah. They're basically yeah. Actually, she reveals that they had been divorced even before the first trip. And, but she wants to stay in England. So originally, um, Lewis arranges to have a, a marriage but not like a traditional marriage more of the i'll get you married so you can have your license to stay in England. citizenship yes yeah, citizenship yeah. one yeah. of those hey, they actually 
it's kind of interesting the way he describes it and the way they have it in the film is she asks him to do it in reality it was it was not that's not wasn't apparently not quite the case he suggested it because he had heard about her uh, difficulties with her husband and worried actually about the impact it would have on the son so the way he put it was let me see what i can do about extending citizenship to you <laughs> so so or, or after she asks or you know what can you just consider at that extension uh so it's uh it, it also put in the film i think kind of humorously when he's talking to his brother warning um who in himself actually uh, was an author as well. He was kind of a historian. They kind of don't do too much with the character in the film, but he was actually a pretty accomplished writer himself. But at any rate, when he's telling Warney this, he says, well, we're just getting married technically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And around this time, they do have one of their first arguments where she sort of calls him out saying that, you know, you live this protected life and it's sort of, Everybody sort of, unless agrees with you, they don't really challenge you a lot. Yeah. You're not being challenged in this. Way. I mean, you can, using a popular term today, you have a safe space. Yeah, yeah, almost. Your whole life is a safe space. Yes. Yeah. But right around there, she starts after they've had this arranged marriage that um, she starts getting sick. And it's, yeah, uh, it's actually key. I think here. I think uh, I like the way Edinburgh <clears throat> does this. They've just had kind of a very nice garden party on the uh, premises of Oxford. And he goes, well, let me show you my quarters. When he lives on campus, they don't always live on campus. The house that she eventually moves into, it's off campus. But the the, the lodging that he uses when he is there, she goes, let me, he goes, let me show you this. And you can see, and Winger does a good job with this in terms of uh, the subtlety of the acting, but also getting across very clear that something's not right with Joy at this point. You can see her wincing as she's walking up the steps to this uh, room. So she's in pain. And we later find out it is uh, bone cancer in her uh, her femur, right? So that kind of makes her less than usually patient, I guess I should say. So that kind of triggers that, um, uh, that attack she does make on his person, and he is taken aback. He, he asks her, where did this come from, Right. And he even tries to defend himself against the uh, the uh, accusations of have, uh, having assured himself of his, his life being an all-encompassing safe space, right? He even says, um, uh, when she challenges, says, you don't have anybody challenging you. He makes reference to uh, Chris Riley, who we see in, in the film, a fellow faculty member. And actually, there are other fellow faculty members that are constantly challenging him and kind of poking fun at him and mm-hmm. um, so forth. So he, he's saying, what about those guys? You know, it, it's kind of interesting. And uh, you don't know it at the time, but that's why why she's reacted in that way. And you find out pretty soon afterwards. Yeah, and then we find out that she has cancer. And he starts to realize that their friendship is more than just friendship. And he feels... Fears that you know he doesn't know what'll happen if he loses her, mm-hmm. and that is when they arrange to have an actual marriage. Yeah, the ceremony. And this is in the hospital. In we have to be real clear about this. This is in the hospital after she's been diagnosed and essentially been told that she doesn't have long to live, and uh, um, he's agonizing over this. Um, she's taking it very, actually, pretty well, and 
having a, she does have naturally concern for the fate of Douglas. And she asks him, will you keep care of Douglas? And she says, yes, or he says, yes, I will. So they do uh, have an actual marriage, right, with a, with a uh, Anglican uh, clergyman. And, and you think that's going to be it, right? And then she's probably going to die shortly thereafter. But then she goes into remission. Mm-hmm. And in the action, the film doesn't quite convey this clearly enough. It does show some changes of season, right? She goes into remission to such an extent she's able to leave the hospital. And then uh, uh, Jack, uh, C.S. Lewis, we can talk about how he got the nickname Jack if you want to. Sure. Um, but he, 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 he says, you're, you're going home. And she goes, she's, you mean back to my apartment in London? No, we're married. You're going to my place. So he takes her to, they, they go to Jack's house, Jack and Warney's house. And you see the change of seasons and you see them interacting like a normal couple and Douglas uh, out playing. And it's, it's really nice. And um, you, get a, you get a sense that it's gone on for some period of time. But in actual fact, and this is pretty remarkable given the nature of the cancer, um, and both of them attribute this actually to intervention, divine intervention, if you read the, their writings or his writings. They both did this. Um, it goes on for almost four years. He, they lived together for four years. Douglas and his brother, who does not appear in the film, <laughs> um, uh, grow up. Douglas goes from being 10 years old to 14 years old. Uh, pretty remarkable. So anyway, I'm sorry I'm interrupting yeah, there. Yeah, we should, because um, unfortunately yeah, the, it's, the remission lasts a while, but near the end it comes back. Because there's that scene when she's knitting, you can see her just starting to, the pains are coming back. Yes. And she even says, I'm sorry, Jack. Yes. And then she has to go back to the hospital. And this time there's going to be no remission. And she talks to um, both Jack and her son, Doug, yeah. to just kind of prepare them for what's going to happen. Yeah. She eventually passes away. And Lewis talks to Doug after she's died and sort of, she's, even he says, I don't, I'm not sure if I believe in heaven now. After mm-hmm. this. And th- that's sort of the, one of the main things about this movie. Mm-hmm. Is you know Lewis in real life was probably one of the most famous Christians in Britain at the time, and he wrote like *Mere Christianity* and all these famous writings about yes. religion. And we see he does these speeches at the college. Yes. And one of the things he always talks about is it's important for there to be pain. Yes. In life, that you know, it's like you got to be tough. You can't. It's a way to t- God is making you tough. Tough. You can't just always just have have the easy way and have a complete you know wonderful little life it's gonna be some tough parts on your way but when he's when he deals with that then you can see his faith is being shooken because he is because the thing is like why did this have to happen to her what did she do what not even just with that but even having the abusive husband before that and the divorce and the affairs why is she having to go through all this why is god putting her through all this and he doesn't you can see near the end he doesn't quite have the answer for it no, and he's uh, quite willing to admit that he doesn't have the answer. That's something I think this uh, film does a very good job of contrasting is the uh, 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 difference in point of view between the, the-, the- theologian or theoretician, the philosopher, who uh, uh, thinking, at, as it were, one remove from pain and suffering attempts to make sense out of it. 
in terms of traditional theology. So you see him giving these lectures that he does, uh, and he has uh, he's memorized it. He's he's got a script that he follows. He always talks about um, uh, uh, recent instances in in news, like. Uh, uh, a group of uh, uh, Royal Marines that were hit by a bus, I believe it was. Yes. And then he, he says, um, he asks for the, for the audience, you know, why would God allow something like this to happen? And then he talks about, he uses an analogy um, that pain and suffering are a bit like the, uh, the blows on a block of stone with a chisel and hammer, right, that the artisan uses to bring out from that block something uh, uh, beautiful, and he says uh, something like that is uh, God's purpose in allowing pain and suffering. Um, and, you know, he gets applause for this and uh, certainly, I think, believed it. These are called theodicies, by the way, te- uh, attempts to render consistent the existence of God and the existence of pain and suffering to the level we have it in this world uh, at the same time. Um, but it becomes a very different thing when it becomes personal in a direct experience and they do a good job of uh, uh, portraying the, the agony he has not for himself um, he questions uh, God even at one point at toward the end of the film when he's really in the depths of uh, uh, his agonies uh, uh, compares God to a vivisectionist um, vivisectionists are uh, experimenters or it's a type of experimentation typically undertaken on animals where they're alive and you you dissect them or or, or remove their skin to watch blood flow or something like that and it's obviously very agonizing for the uh, animals that are uh, subject to this and he's he's comparing god to a vivisectionist here and uh, he has no answer to that uh description and wonders you know why would he allow this to happen for joy it's not so much for himself but for joy and uh douglas and part of the uh, i can tell the script writer um part of what he relied on when he was um writing that dialogue actually comes from a very small book that Lewis wrote after all of this happened, or actually during and after all of this happened. It's only about 30 pages long, and it's called A Grief Observed. And uh, some of the dialogue in the film is almost literally word for word um, uh, taken from that small book. And if you can find a uh, later editions of it. It's fascinating. Um, Douglas Gresham writes the introduction to this thing and talks about his father and his mother. And um, he himself actually um, ended up being a Christian writer, just as C.S. Lewis is or was. Um, and he tells his side of the story. It's kind of interesting. Uh, one liberty they take in the film is. Uh, toward the end there, where he he voices the same kinds of doubts that uh, Lewis does together when they're up in the attic in front of the uh, uh, dresser, the the Narnia dresser, uh, grieving together. Um, uh, In actuality, it's kind of interesting. Uh, 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 The first time the the cancer really hit her hard, um, he 
he's walking home. So I, I guess the uh, hospital was relatively close to their house. He's walking home. He goes by a church and he goes into the church and he has a conversation with God and a sudden, very peaceful and secure feeling came over him at that point. This, and this isn't in the film at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and he knew at that point, no matter what happened to his mom, he, she would be okay. And, and then uh, the remission happens. He's convinced that the, re- the remission happened because of divine intervention and that experience he had. Um, and she comes home for the four years. Uh, and then it, it, it sets in again with a vengeance. <clears throat> and he goes by that same church. And he's 14 at this time. And uh, goes back in, has another conversation with God uh, about how he's going to be able to help Jack, hopefully, uh, because he's older now and more mature than he was at 10. He doesn't feel quite so helpless and horrified at what might be happening. Um, And that same feeling comes over him. And he leaves once again, and he's convinced it was uh, actually Jesus that uh, intervened. So... It's an interesting contrast in the in the real story. I, I think Gresham had less of a crisis of faith than um, uh, Lewis Jack did. Um, Jack, you can see if you read those twenty eight pages of A Grief Observed, uh, he never quite comes to the conclusion that this amount of pain and suffering just indicates that there just simply is no God. You know, and then nature, and, and it's just kind of naturally brutish because it's undirected and certainly not directed by any kind of a moral agency. He flirts with that, but he never quite uh, buys that. And as you know, later in his life, he still remained a Christian. Um, but he took more seriously the possibility, and this is an interesting one, and it's also another possible reaction to the uh, uh, amount of pain and suffering that does exist in the world. Uh, he did uh, more seriously flirt with the idea that maybe just God it just is not all good, and maybe he's a monstrous kind of entity, like a vivisectionist. He really thought about that quite a while in those 30 pages, which, which cover you know the whole time period. Um, uh, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating to see him do that. Now, ultimately, he comes around to not believing that, and... Uh, uh, is more reconciled. You know, he's kind of going through stages of grief, as anybody would. Um, but still, he's brutally honest with, with himself about this. He's, if you'd asked him, he'd say he's brutally honest with God. Why are you doing this to her? Right? Um, uh, very much in the line of very, uh, uh, famous uh, uh, books of, uh, of the Bible, like the book of Job, talk about the same issue. And uh, he's also very brutally honest to say at these key times when these kinds of things are happening to people very often, and I forget the exact quote, but he says very often when you need him the most, you go up and knock on the door, bang on the door. Not only does he not open it, this is how he puts it, Jack puts it, not only does he not open it, you can hear the locks being put to. There's a purposeful silence. And he doesn't know why. And he admits, I probably never will know why. Nevertheless, I believe he does exist. And it's interesting, you read into, they don't talk about this in the movie, but if you do some research into Lewis's life, he was, he was, grew up in a religious background. 
but around the time he became a teenager, he was an atheist. Mm-hmm. And in, around that time also, because he puts like it talks about how he puts himself off from being you know the pain. He did serve in World War One, and he saw combat. Yeah. I believe he was wounded, and you know, he was hit by an artillery shell or something. I believe, and mm-hmm. two of his friends who were there died. Yes, he was, he was the lucky one that survived. I think he said it wasn't around till the late twenties that he had that conversion back to Christianity. Yeah, and even talking about he when the Second World War came around, because remember he was only like eighteen, nineteen when he served in the First World War. The Second yeah. World War, he because of his age, he didn't serve, but he was doing a lot of radio sermons. Yes, for Brit for the BBC during that time, and it was considered very inspiring because you know the, the yeah. London and all these other places are being hit during the Blitz, but he's doing this with reaffirming the faith and so he's he's yeah. he's not as cloistered as the as the yeah. film represents yeah, so i was saying like, yeah. if you see like yeah. he did have to deal with some stuff i mean he was a veteran and he was wounded in combat so you're gonna have to you, you deal with that you yeah. are gonna feel some pain and suffering yeah and he actually talks about all those episodes in that short book <laughs> uh, uh a grief observed so uh, the question arises in light of all this, and he also mentions in the film and in the in the book of uh, uh, his the, the death of his own mother hit him very hard too. So he's not he's not cloistered as as cloistered as the film presents him to be. But uh, there's a couple things can be said about that. Um, I think he would say, uh, nevertheless, that he did intentionally, purposefully uh, take on a. A, a lifestyle that that would be somewhat successful in uh, insulating him from uh, trials and tribulations later in life, right? Because, you know, you get old, you don't want to keep doing these kinds of things or opening yourself up to them. Um, so that's part of it. But um, uh, the film, is, it's a drama. It's not a historical document. We have to remember that. But It's based on uh, a play. It is based on a play, which is at one remove from the history as well. Uh, uh, and you see obvious signs of that with the fact that there's only one kid involved, <laughs> Douglas. We don't even hear about the brother. But um, uh, so you have to ask yourself, why are they doing this? And clearly it is it, it is for purposes of uh, drawing vivid characters and allowing the plot develop in the, to develop in the way it does. And to be fair, uh, I think if you asked uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, obviously he, he can't, uh, give us his opinion here he would say um uh, they base that on his own his own character and his own choices at least later in life where he he did and he preferred a, 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 a the life of an academic cloistered somewhat insulated from the travails of life um but i think it, your point's very well taken he wasn't so insulated especially having uh, fought in world war 1 and actually being quite an inspiration in those radio broadcasts they weren't simple sermons they were uh uh, uh discussions not only of uh, uh his views on christianity which are profound i think they're he, he's one of the few writers i think uh in philosophy or theology that you can point to and say this man writes with crystal clear precision but also with emotional depth and he's one of the few that when you start reading his books it's very hard to put them down because he's such a good writer um so there was that element but there was also that element of stirring the uh 
English populace in the face of the Blitz and in the face of the German onslaught. And, um, it was actually quite patriotic. So he was in the mix, I would say, not to the extent of someone like Churchill, who would go tour the bombed ruins and, and obviously running the war effort, but still very much in the mix. Um, and it's kind of a shame, I think, that they didn't develop that a little bit more in this film, or at least give us an inkling of it, although that would have taken him a little far astray, I think, from the central theme. Yeah, and one of the things we we didn't bring up about Joy is that she is Jewish, or she comes from a Jewish background. Actually, she describes herself. It's so funny. She describes herself as, a what was it, a Jewish, atheist, communist, Christian, or yeah, something, something like, like that. that. We, we, she comes from that Jewish background, and I was thinking because of the times and because you know it's you know the stuffy academic institution, I thought she's going to face a lot of anti-Semitism. But we don't really see that in the movie. There's sexism towards her because yeah. she's a woman, and she does have that great line. She says, are you... Are you merely confused or are you just stupid? It's yeah, yeah. like great. That. That's because what what does Chris say? Chris Riley, he's he's actually giving voice to a a, a a psychology that as far as I know goes back to Aristotle, where he says, you know, the 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 difference in the psychology between males and females is males have intelligence. Yeah. And and uh, females have soul and he's just dripping sarcasm when he says that and he's he's poking fun at her being a woman but he's also i think makes it pretty clear that he's looking down his nose at an american too and she just has that great one-liner and he's t- he's totally nonplussed and it, i love the the way Attenborough just shows just a little bit of jack cracking up yeah just a little bit say oh man she got him because you can tell he and Chris Riley are going at it all the time. Mm-hmm. There's an affection there, but they're very two very different people in terms of their outlook on life. Yes, because he. Well, I was thinking because of her background and because he's a Christian, you'd think there would be some sort of clash of faith or I, or religious ideals, and it doesn't quite seem like that. It isn't because she actually is a Christian. Um, she, like him, went through various phases as as because she's quite intelligent. Um, um, in fact. The way he describes her and the way Douglas uh, describes her is she was probably the one person that was uh, able to, on a consistent basis, challenge him to the degree that he would become uncomfortable. Um, Even Chris Riley couldn't quite get to that level because she was just as smart as he was. So she went through all these phases that kind of happened in the early 20th century with people that were darn smart and well-read, um, and she's quite honest about it. She says, you know, for a while there, I was taken with communism until I saw what it was, um, and uh, uh, atheism for a while, and then I came back around to uh, theism, but not Jewish theism. I became a Christian. So she kind of uh, laughingly describes herself as a Jewish Christian, right, uh, to, to get that point across. And the reason she visits... Uh, C.S. Lewis in the first place is because his books did the job, right? Again, because of their purpose, their very clear writing and uh, 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 the emotional connection he, he's able to forge between himself and his readers. Uh, it really works on, on her, and it uh, turns her into a Christian, but also gives her peace of mind, too. So naturally, she wants to talk to this guy, and it's kind of funny— um, 
uh, Gresham uh, Douglas when he's uh, describing their their first uh, introductions with each other. Um, he notes, you know, I was kind of thinking after I read the Narnia books, I'm going to see some guy that's like, like a big, big brawny mm-hmm. fighter, and you know, he's he's going to have the the uh, armor on and a spear or something like that. And I see this crumpled, rumpled little old man in wrinkly clothes and uh, big Coke bottle glasses and so forth. Very unimpressive. She actually says something to similar effect. Um, but as soon as he started talking, we had conversations. I got over that real quick. They both say that. It's kind of interesting. And what is funny, because I think of all his works, his, I think the Narn, his Narnia series is probably the most famous and the most uh, memorable. Yeah. Douglas is such a huge fan. But what is interesting, when people look at that series, everybody always looks for the Christian themes in it. And you even see this in the movie. He says, like, it's you know sometimes a wardrobe is just the wardrobe. Just a wardrobe. Like yeah. They're even saying like you know she she walks through the wardrobe and the fur and is it like they're trying to make it like it's it's like it's the Freudian fur, yeah like yeah Freudian he goes, yeah. no it's just a wardrobe it's just a wardrobe and he's even even said that it's like yeah I didn't really have any of these Christian plant intentionally plant yeah. any Christian themes in the series right right it's it's funny because uh, that does you know indicate the human uh, a very human tendency we all have when we're reading literature or watching films or so forth trying to find you know hidden hidden themes and so forth and especially with him you'd think oh he's he's consciously creating this theme not necessarily you know maybe unconsciously it's in there so forth he had plenty of time in other books to develop explicitly his thoughts on christianity and like you said probably the most famous one of those is mere christianity which uh, uh does a good job and i would say the, the first chapter or so of that book also is just great a very great uh philosophical document because it kind of draws out in very clear language the phenomenology of moral experience um uh according to which uh we presuppose in our in our moral in our behavior in terms of morality and holding each other responsible and thoughts about good and evil and so forth we presuppose that uh, in in doing that, a that it's objective, and b that it's something like uh, laws in the legal sense, where you are obligated to behave in certain ways uh, by that law. And he does a very interesting job of weaving that common element. Uh, it's a very Kantian element um, uh, in in. in it, in making the case at the best explanation for the fact that we treat them as if they were pieces of legislation or law, moral laws, this is, is that they are in fact legislated. They are in fact commanded. And naturally, he, he takes that to be uh, commanded by God. Um, so it's a great little book. I mean, and he, like I said, he, I, I think you're right. I mean, when he sets out to do it, he's going to tell you explicitly, I'm talking Christianity and religion and philosophy here. Narnia, it's a damn kid's book, for goodness yeah, sake. Yeah. Don't overread into it. Well, even because I think when you think of the Narnia series, one of the things that's always going to come up similar to that is J.R.R. Tolkien and his Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit books. And I believe, was, Chris, was Tolkien also a Christian? Yes. In fact, he was part of this group called the Inkling that... Uh, included C.S. Lewis, a, a bunch of buddies that would get together and talk about these things. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also, I believe, he also was a veteran in World War One. Yes, and had the same same experiences. So you think like 
they were. I bet you people are probably asking Tolkien the same thing. What are the Christian <laughs> yeah. themes in The Hobbits or Gandalf? Yes. Probably says the same thing. Says, you know, I'm just writing a story. Goodness, for goodness sake, guys, <laughs> just give it a rest. <laughs> you know? All right. Getting close to the end of my questions here. Anything else you want to bring up before we start signing off? Well, I, I, I really like the film. Um, I had time uh, to look at the precursor by the same producer of this theatrical release. There was a two-part BBC television version of this, which I would recommend for anybody that has seen this movie because it actually fleshes out the dialogue a bit more. And it, it has a, a longer middle section uh, that's supposed to be during the four years of remission that shows you a lot more of their experiences during that four years. And it really gives you the impression that this lasted a long time and they started to see this as a tremendous and unexpected gift. And it hits them, hits you as the viewer all the harder. And it hit them obviously as they lived through it all the harder because it had lasted so long. They do a very good job in that television production of doing that. And in terms of this film, uh, I like Attenborough's use of um, uh, symbolism or imagery at two points in the film that I think really work. Um, When Joy first comes to the house and she's kind of looking around his study full of books and so forth, that she sees this picture on the wall. And it is a picture of a place called the Golden Valley, which is in Herefordshire, Herefordshire somewhere. And apparently it's a picture that is... uh, Lewis's mother had. So he's got this remembrance of his mom that we know uh, her passing um, affected him terribly, right? Um, And he goes, yeah, um, uh, I always, when I was a kid, thought of it as heaven. Uh, I didn't know it was a real place. So a little later during that remission, um, what do they do? At one point she goes, you told me that this was really a place, right, Jack? Yep. Let's go find it. So they jump in the car, have an adventure. She gets him out of his comfort zone a little bit, right? And uh, they drive around. They actually find that place. And there's a nice touching moment there. But uh, so it's an interesting question it poses. Heaven on earth? Question mark, right? And then uh, at the end of the film, when Douglas and Jack are... uh, 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 walking through a scene very similar to that uh, Golden Valley scene, beautiful English countryside, um, uh, in his final voiceover is going on. I think there's an indicator there that maybe the central theme of this film is um, uh, the, the, the purpose for humanity is is to uh, find and experience love. I think that's I think that's probably the ultimate theme here. And they do a great job of tying that together at those three different parts of the, the film. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usna.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and the Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcast, Real Sounds, which episode I dedicate to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at thesoundofcinema.podomatic.com. Uh, for our next episode, we will be discussing the 2020 or 2021 film, uh, 
uh, Onoda 10,000 Nights in the Jungle. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Sing so long, be sure to catch us next time on Philosophy at the Movies.